Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. And together we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard. Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard. Ooh, very nice. Then Die Hard on a Blank is for you. Yes, you personally. Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, drop December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. I'm Liam Billingham. I'm George Fragopoulos. And this is Uber Busters, George. Why didn't you, did you say it. the name of our podcast? Uh, I did it. Because I, I like to open up suspense. <laughs> Ooh. That's the new name of the podcast. Silence is like the <laughs> highest form of art, you know, because it can't be ruined. Speaking of not silence <laughs> and boring people, uh, welcome back to the podcast. Uberbusters deep dives by dialectical dudes. I'm still trying to make it happen. You trying are. to make it happen. It's not happen. And our man. guest this week is Brian Cogman. Hi, Brian. Hello, gentlemen. Brian, what's how going are on? you? I'm I'm excellent. How are you, how are you guys? It's uh, lovely to be to, here. You don't have to lie to us, Brian. We, nobody's no, excellent I'm, nowadays. <laughs> I'm i I this is I've been looking forward to this all week. You know, this is uh, I mean, this and impeachment were right. Neck and neck for yeah. the things I was looking most forward to. Oh God! And, These are exciting and I got, days, and I got both in in, <laughs> in one day. I'm really glad we, by the way, you know, not to get too inside baseball. I guess I just dated this. this episode. Sorry, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter. Um, I was going to say I'm glad we didn't do it last Wednesday. That would have been a oh, rougher yeah. time. Oh my to God! Be that's like, right, because we were originally supposed to record. Oh my God! Can you imagine? We'd be like, "Hi, welcome to the podcast." Um, I mean, I was a, I was a shell. I don't think I probably, yeah. if if you hadn't postponed, I probably would have been that guy to be like, guys, I just can't do it. I just don't <laughs> have the, I just don't think I could be present. I promise, I, I did not do that. I did not have knowledge. That's not why I canceled the. the no, because I think you, because I think you did before the Capitol was attacked. Yes, yeah. I would I explain like why it was were... an hour prior. Yeah. Wait a minute. <laughs> At like 1 p.m. that day, I was like, guys, I'm not going to be able to make it to the recording <laughs> session. I need bail money. Oh Actually, no, I just I just walked out because yeah, that's what like, happened. Why is he calling me from within the Capitol? You may have Your seen me. I was the was guy to... dressed as Chewbacca. That was, Your that one was you? call was to Brian Cogman and George you know, Fragopoulos? That's really... They really don't want to piss me off in terms of... Podcast. We really scheduling. care about I will your... say, although that now that Brian has mentioned that we're doing this on the day of the second impeachment, this automatically goes into the Library of Congress, this episode. Oh, hey. Well, it is, it we, is automatically uh, of great historical we, importance. We, we better do a, a good job then. Hey, Library of Congress, how do you like your dick jokes? Because they're coming at <laughs> oh. you, probably. probably. Oh, are they? Oh, well, great. We should, we we'll should figure out a way to get them in guest. There. We should introduce so our guest. So it's that kind of podcast. <laughs> I it, see. it definitely is. 
When it uh, works. Brian, it George, works. should I, George, should I, should I introduce our Please, guest in a yes. more formal? Now that we've been idiots with him, with with him for four minutes. Brian Cogman is a screenwriter, producer, and once and future actor. He spent ten years and eight seasons working on the HBO series Game of Thrones, finishing up its run as co-executive producer and writing eleven episodes of the series. He is a consulting producer on Amazon's upcoming Lord of the Rings series and has written the screenplay for Disney's upcoming live-action remake of Sword in the Stone. Currently, Brian is developing a number of original TV, new original TV series for E1, including a contemporary reimagining of Akira Kurosawa's. Yojimbo. So not entirely an original series. <laughs> so Brian, a million but, questions. Know. First of all, what's Game of Thrones? Yeah. Is that a well, show? Well, it was a, it was a little, little, little show about a bastard in a dream. Yeah, it's still a blur. I, I, I'm still, you know, suffering mild PTSD from where can i find it i'm gonna keep this joke going you can um, find it on on (laughs) hbo max now (laughs) do you do you when you were working on the show and working at it on the end and i still have not seen the last season i held off i've held off i don't know how yeah i've I've been holding (laughs) during quarantine too i know were people like calling you and being like what the what what were they were they giving you a hard time Uh, did you get did you get hot takes from people well sure i've some some. Yeah. I mean, I was I was not on I was not on social media for those couple of years, which was probably wise. Help, healthy. And then by the time I got back on, everyone had essentially calmed calmed down, and I still get the occasional unsolicited uh, <laughs> review. I hate mail, well, but yeah. uh, most of which are I mean, people are people are very nice generally who reach out. Occasionally, you get a, a, a nasty comment, but for the most part, the fandom has been lovely to me and that's great and, and and was and was through you know the most of the series and but hey you know it it inflamed a lot of passions which you know i i i'd rather work on something that people cared that much about than something that was ignored so totally um, so there it is but yeah it was i i say i say ptsd not so much because of the uh reaction uh, uh good or ill but simply just the making the show you know, I, I don't think I quite realized how tired I was until the decade was over. <laughs> I, I and, can uh, only imagine. You know what I mean? Especially that last season. Yeah. The last season was a real, I mean, it was a solid year of production. And, also, it was like you know. feature films. Those yeah, like in terms of the scope. Things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Jeez, definitely. man. Definitely. And night shoots and, and all of it. So it's been nice the last couple of years uh, uh, writing and kind of, being being at home and, but I'm, I'm itching to get back on set again i do miss that i do miss it so well hopefully hopefully if COVID allows it production will resume fingers again crossed. These things. fingers crossed that'll happen soon uh you may have guessed already but in case you haven't george what movie is brian agreed to come talk to us about today Liam, we are talking about 1961's yojimbo which if you don't mind, I'd like to read a plot summary of Yojimbo. I'd love to hear what you're doing. That's Yojimbo good, because, I, because I've, I've not seen the picture. I, I've <laughs> yeah. not seen the movie, so yeah. I'm excited to, to hear what it's about. I just so, heard, oh, IP. Great. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm, of it's course not I'm about a guy named Jim, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yo, Jim. Um, yeah, no, no. It is not that. Uh, I'm, I'm joking, of course. Listeners, of don't, course. Don't, don't worry. <laughs> 
So Yojimbo tells the tale of a ronin that is a samurai without a master who stumbles across a town that is besieged by two rival gangs. Two gang leaders, Sebe and Ushitora, have aligned themselves with two different merchants, one a sake seller, the other a silk seller. Uh, the sake seller, by the way, is played by... Liam, do you know who the sake seller is played by? Is it... um? It's oh yeah, it's uh, Takashi Takashi Shimura. Takashi Shimura. Yeah, yeah. yeah. how great, dare uh, you try to great, step uh, the the greatest the Kurosawa the actor? Yeah, um, the Ronin who goes by the name of Sanjiro, uh, which translates to Mulberry Field, in which he kind of just completely pulls out of his ass, uh, decides to stay in town in order to kill a whole bunch of dudes and to get the two gangs to destroy one another. In the process, Sanjiro rescues a number of people from the evil clutches of the two gangs, um, such as the wife of a local man who's been abducted and basically sold off into sex slavery to Ishitora. At some point, Sanjiro is captured and beaten up, but escapes. film ends with him confronting Ishitora's gang after it has destroyed Sebe's gang and pretty much slain everybody in Sebe's family as well, including his wife. Uh, Sanjiro then slays everybody that's left and leaves the town after bringing peace to the land. The end. There you yeah, have wow. it. that's that is a that is basically what happens uh, I, in, in Yojimbo. I did see the movie Yojimbo. twice, even actually. Um, the film was directed by Akira Kurosawa. It was written by Akira Kurosawa and Ryuzu Kukushima. It was produced by Tomoyuki Tanaka and Ryuzu Kukushima and Akira Kurosawa, and was edited almost as always by Akira Kurosawa. God, <laughs> what a talented jerk! Yeah, um, that's astonishing. Uh, Toshiro Mufune plays Kuatabataki Sanjuro, which means Mulberry Field. Tatsuya Nakadai, who amazingly Kurosawa didn't actually like for this role, plays Unosuke, wow. the gun, the gunslinger. When you say didn't um, like, you mean didn't want to cast him or wasn't pleased with the performance? I think he didn't want him for the performance. Didn't want him for the role. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then nice. he then he watched watched a bunch of movies that he was in. Um hmm. Takashi Shimura as Tokuyaman, Daisuke Kato, who's in a bunch of Kurosawa films as Inokichi, mm. Sizaboro Kawasawa as Saibe, Kyuzu Sazanka as Ushitori, and in her final Kurosawa role, Izuzu Yamada as Orin, um, who she's oh, probably best known oh, for, yeah. Thr- yeah, for, Throne, uh, for Throne of Blood as the Lady Macbeth. Yes, indeed. In. Um, yeah, it's, it's always fun to see his... Um, stable of repertory players in these movies. It must be fun watching them all together the way you gentlemen are uh, and seeing how he utilizes them. Is there is an actor, one of the things that's been great, and I'm sure George can speak to this too, is that we we set out to do this to talk about Mifune and Kurosawa, but Mm. it has almost as much been a Takashi Shimura podcast. Oh, sure. And, yeah. um, you know, there's a couple other small... So, uh, Honama, the, the master swordsman who leaves because he's only making two Ryu versus <laughs> is um, Susumu Fujita, who is the lead of Sanshiro Sugata, the early mm-hmm. Kurosawa films, and was sort of his, like, muse before Mifune shows up. And I think it's mm. interesting how... In well, that's kind of a the, meta commentary there, isn't it? Yeah, and the same oh, thing happens yeah. in Throne, in um, Hidden Fortress, where... Mm. Mufune fights off Susumu Fujita and they're like, they're sort of like two Adonises fighting and there always seems to be this conflict between them in the movies. And, li- well, and, then, you have, I- and then you have Tetsuya Nakadai making yes. his debut. I think his Kurosawa debut. It's mm-hmm. certainly in a major role in this movie. Uh, and, then, and then in Sanjiro, uh, also playing the antagonist. And that seems 
weirdly unintentional a kind of foreshadowing of the passing of the I don't think baton. I knew he was in Sanjuro. That's really interesting. I yeah, he's the villain. He's he's his primary villain uh, antagonist in Sanjuro as well and and a lot of the same cast turns up, even though it's technically a sequel. I love you know? it. I love that he just did yeah. that. And then the the other person I just wanted to mention is um, the really amazing. Uh, where is it? Where is he on this list here? Kamatari Fujiwara, who is actually in more Kurosawa films than any other actor. Mm. And who he does he is play? In he plays the he plays. Tazaman, the man who murders the silk merchant who goes insane and murders. Oh, 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 oh yeah. Oh, he's yeah. fantastic. He's, he's fantastic. in this. He's, he's in, a great um, part in Sanjuro as well. Yeah. Feels, Lower depths, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, high and low, bad sleep well, hidden fortress, I live in yeah. fear, seven samurai, Ikiru. He's like, he's in more, I think he's weirdly in more movies than a lot of these guys. So it's he's been the, really he's the, the ward bond of Kurosawa. Yeah. Huh? Yeah, Anyone? Exactly. Yeah. Anyone? Like yeah, we're with uh, you. We're with you. Well, because I, um, I remember when the AFI list came out, they said the most the actor with the most films in the AFI list is Ward Bond because he was just in everything. Oh my god. That anyway. is Yeah. That is fun. I didn't I I I I thought we were making a an actual Bond reference. I got confused on where Ward I was. Bond. Ward Bond. <laughs> Ward I Bond. He was it. he was in all of John Ford's movies and He's uh, he's birthed the cop and it's a wonderful life. He's in every old movie you've ever seen, that's but playing like the utility character parts, you know. George, season six, Ward Bond. Uh, possibly. You you it would take you ten years to do it. <laughs> I know. It's, it's too many movies. We'd have to pick and choose very very carefully. Yeah, because he's be one of those fun, dudes though. that made like a hundred movies. You know, because he was just you know one of those contract players that just. Yeah. You know. Well, it's like also when you look at the look at the filmographies of some of these actors and these Kurosawa films, they made a movie every 15 minutes. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's yeah. unbelievable. Like we're, we're, we're reading the Stuart Galbraith book, the emperor and the wolf, which you've oh, not, cool. amazing. I've never read it. No, I, I know of it, but I've he never read it. was cool and came on the first episode of the podcast and sort of like schooled us. Oh, on. Yeah. That's a, it, that's we got exciting. him, we got him to kind of like, he lives in Kyoto and like was sort of just like, yeah, I'll come talk about my, my 25 year old book. Sure guys, whatever wow. you want me to do. Um, but he made the good point that, um, about oh, sort of is. like the system. A, yeah, it's a great it's a book. Thick book. It is. A I should pick that up now test. that I'm now that I'm because I'm you know I'm a, I've certainly I've always been a big Kurosawa fan and I've seen most of his major pictures, but I I would could would never profess to be any kind of of uh, encyclopedic expert on him. So I'm gonna have to listen back to back episodes of the season as well. Um, you know, because as I as I've I've been diving into Yojimbo obviously quite a lot, but um, I want to be more familiar with all of it. I. It's been really, really great for us. We're coming sort of to the end because we're we're covering mostly the Mafune Kurosawa stuff, but um, mm-hmm. it's been really, really amazing. Speaking of Galbraith, I did not know this, but the film is actually based on Dashiell Hammett's continental op novel, Red Harvest, which I read in a single sitting on Christmas Eve three years ago. And I so, just picked it up yes. and was like, here we go. Did it resonate? Red Harvest... Did, did Red Harvest resonate? Uh, for Lee, I'm sorry. Like, watching this again, did were you able to pick up on Because I had a no idea bit, that it was A little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Brian, you probably know it pretty well. Red Harvest is one of my favorite books. It's, uh, it's I and I love the Continental Alp. Here's my my big book of the Continental Alp right here. Oh, man. So All what's the, the short... Con- so the, the Continental Alp... The Continental Alp is Dashiell Hammett's first great character. He appeared in uh, dozens of short stories. So this book has the short stories 
and then like two novels, that. Red Harvest and another novel called The Dane Curse, which is also awesome. And um, Red Harvest was actually um, originally a bunch of short stories published in Black, Ma- Ma- Black Mass Magazine called The Cleansing of Poisonville. That was the original title, oh, so which good. I fucking love. And actually, if you read the original short stories, he did a, quite a bit of revisions when they were put together to, to be the novel Red Harvest. But anyway, right. The Continental Op is is a, a, an operative of a Pinkerton-esque uh, agency who, um, much like Yo- Yojimbo, comes into this, this town that's under the, you know, the yoke of two rival criminal organizations and much like Yojimbo and, and uh, uh, fistful of dollars, he insinuates himself into kind of both worlds and plays them against each other and, and they destroy each other. And so, yes, it, it is an unofficial inspiration to this film. And then filmically filmmaking wise, uh, Kurosawa acknowledged uh, a 1942 picture called the glass key, mm-hmm. which is also based uh-huh. on the Dashiell Hammett novel. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely rooted in hard boiled detective fiction of the, of the twenties, which is my favorite thing. It's, it's, it's actually weirdly one of the things that got me most excited about doing a new version of this film is to be able to tap into those literary sources in, in terms of the inspiration of how to, of how to do it in a contemporary setting, because thematically there's so much, they have mm-hmm. so much in common. Um, I mean, I'm jumping around a lot, but yeah, Red Harvest is Chill. amazing. There's never been a continental lot movie or a Red Harvest movie because, um, and believe me, I've looked into it because uh, I, I think the rights are still in the hands of someone who's had them forever. And um, the closest thing we ever got besides these movies to a continental lot movie, funnily enough, is Brian Johnson's Brick. You guys remember that movie? I love that movie. I've never seen that, it. He, Brendan in Brick is essentially the continental. Yeah, I, yeah, I could totally see that. Well, and in terms yeah. of persona and that kind of ratty and hunched and takes a takes a beating kind of less less suave and smooth than say Philip Marlowe, you know, or I'm going to take a big swing and guess that Rian Johnson is also a pretty big continental op and oh, oh, yeah, 1920s film noir. Yeah. No, he's he's said as much. I mean, he's said that yeah. the, the that Brick is essentially his Dashiell Hammett continental op. Yeah. I love movie. that movie. George, you should oh, yeah, see it. I should see it. I'll check it out. Um speaking of of uh well of, of all these things yojimbo is a subversion of a chambara genre which were action films about feudal japan that i feel like are somewhat comparable to like 90s and 80s action movies in the united states just in mm. terms of their frequency and kind of appeal mm-hmm. um the film was revolutionary for its sound effects music the music is unreal <sighs> graphic violence and it's anti-hero i really i want to chat about I'm, re- I'm excited to talk about the anti-hero of in this. course um the film was a huge hit, both in Japan and the United States. Kurosawa and his cinematographer, Kazu Miyagawa, reunited for this film. They hadn't worked together since Rashomon. Uh, mm-hmm. Famously, Kurosawa sued Sergio Leone after the release of A Fistful of Dollars. Kurosawa won the lawsuit and was rewarded something <laughs> along the lines of $100,000. Wow. Finally, in, in ni- the early One 1990s... One million dollars. One million dollars. I'd always... I'm sorry to interrupt, but I always amused please. me that Leone thought they, that they thought they could get away with it. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of crazy. It's so blatantly... So in the Galbraith book, there's this great uh, story about how Leone received a letter from Kurosawa that basically said like, hey... Great film, but you totally ripped me off. <laughs> yeah, and Leone, yeah. Leone was so thrilled that Kurosawa <laughs> said that he had made a great film that he apparently kept showing everybody this letter. 
And they were like, dude, you can't fucking brag about that letter because right. we're getting sued. He's suing you. Yeah, Leone's like, but he said I made a great film. Like Kurosawa said, I nailed it. And they're like, dude. That's pretty not, amazing. Not a good show. Not a good show. Um, according to George, a terrible, and according to George, this is terrible, <laughs> remake was made in the early 1990s with Bruce Willis. <laughs> Takes place during the 1930s, titled Last Man, directed by the great Walter Hill. Great so director. I'll take a little bit of hey. exception. I enjoyed yeah. that film. I haven't seen it since I was. You know, even Picasso occasionally made a shitty painting. I'm just saying. I, I've not. I've not seen the film. I, I intend on at least screening it once. You know, before I get into uh, adapting this new version in earnest, just just for due diligence. But I haven't. I haven't seen it. I'll probably like it. Isn't it set in like the 30s in Prohibition? Yeah. yeah. I'm gonna love it. Just walking. <laughs> Is Christopher Walken, Walken isn't in? it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. in all yeah. fairness, it's been a very long time since I've seen it, so I should go back. Yeah, yeah. I, I suspect the... I'll I'll be fine with it, but I haven't. Yeah. But I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. Speaking of um, reactions, uh, Brian, how, do you like Yojimbo? What are your feelings? About <laughs> funnily, funnily enough, I don't like the movie. No, <laughs> um, uh, no. I listen. I, I this is a this is a masterpiece. I mean, what do you <laughs> what do you right. what do you say? I mean, it's uh, I I would have first seen it. Um, I used to live in, in New York and uh, I would go to film forum there all the time mm-hmm. as, as young earnest acting students were wont to do. And uh, I remember they were doing a, a Kurosawa Mifuni series where all, they screened all of them. So I saw within the space of a few days um, all for the first time in beautiful, oh. in beautiful prints, uh, Seven Samurai, Stray Dog, Hidden Fortress, um, Yojimbo, uh, and then and Throne of Blood. I think those were the Damn. those were the ones I saw in that series, and um, of course, immediately fell in love. Uh, I've probably, I mean, if I'm being honest, of of all of the Kurosawa Mifune collaborations, I've probably uh, watched Throne of Blood and Seven Samurai the most. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly Throne of Blood, I'm just I'm an enormous fan of that. I mean, I, I was a classical acting major, and, and so for obvious reasons, I was attracted to uh, yeah. Kurosawa's Shakespeare films. Um, but uh, but I love but I love Yojimbo, and then and then I've I've revisited it many years for many years since, and and always loved it. And uh, it's an incredible movie. It's um it's so f- what I've discovered, you know, having rewatched it now several times since since uh getting this particular gig uh i'm i'm struck by how and i guess this is true of any great filmmaker or any kurosawa film but it's so lean mm-hmm. and tight there's not a wasted moment there's not a wasted <laughs> shot um and it's also so funny i i had forgotten and i think it's because in my my head for many years i i had sort of in some ways meshed it with a fistful of dollars. Uh, I'd forgotten how funny and, and kind of blatantly allegorical it is. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, a dark comic allegory of the rise of capitalism and, and, and the death of chivalry essentially. And, and um, I, that wouldn't have really occurred to me before. I would, I would, I, in many ways, because I, I probably had seen fistful of dollars. In fact, I'm sure I'd seen a fistful of dollars before I'd ever seen Yojimbo. As mm-hmm. I'm sure many Western audience, uh, Western viewers Me have. Too. So, so I think in the first few times I ever watched Jojimbo, I was, um, compa- I was thinking of it in, in this is a Western terms because I knew 
about the Western remake. And certainly it is. I mean, Kurosawa called it a gangster Western, which is, that's a concept I'm embracing for my version. Just, you know, but um, a gangster Western. I mean, what what could be better? But, uh, and so it certainly has Western trappings and obviously pays a lot of visual uh, uh, tribute to Westerns and John Ford Mm -hmm. and all of it. But uh, it's that scrappy, hard-boiled, lean, Dashiell Hammity actually mm-hmm. sort of aesthetic that um, that I really respond to when watching it, and then and then the other thing that has really I, I've got it playing in front of me right now actually, and I'm just looking at it, just the composition of it. It it it, it uses widescreen in such an incredible yeah. way because it's a widescreen movie and there isn't any uh, anything wasted in the frame, but it's a lot of close-ups. It's a lot mm-hmm. of beautifully composed widescreen. Um, closer. I imagine in pan and scan, it would be a, a fucking nightmare. I mean, I guess that's the, that's true about any movie that's in pan and scan, but particularly this because just the way that different. The, the, I'm looking at a shot right now where where Marfuni's you know head is tight in the frame on the left side of the frame, and then a bunch of bodies on one side, and, and that's used to great effect in Sanjuro, even maybe even more mm-hmm. so in this movie. Sorry, I'm jumping around because I just love no, it so fine. much. Please, I've also please. I've been watching this goddamn movie so much lately that it's. <laughs> I'm having dreams about it. Are you it watching it like weekly? Do, like what, what's your uh, frequency? I don't know if it's, I haven't hit weekly yet. And at a certain point I'm going to have to put it away and just really focus yeah. on our version, which is, I mean, and all I can say about it is that it's, it's obviously a, a TV series. Uh, it's a reimagining and it's contemporary and that's all I can say about it. But um, uh, so, so it's going to take a lot of, it's going to be its own thing. It's going to, yeah be inspired by but it's gonna be its own thing so eventually i'll have to put it to one side um but yeah i've probably watched it on average once a week for the last few few weeks um wow. time well spent i mean there's it's never boring and you're always finding something new and in, in, in many ways it's not helpful because i'm not it's too good a movie so mm-hmm. The work, the homework I need to do to sort of help me structurally with mine, or like, oh, okay, what what character is this, and how could this character be reimagined, or what's ha- my analytical movie brain gets um, pushed to the side, and and the movie fan just gets enveloped by it on the twelfth viewing. Which I mean, if that totally. isn't a if that isn't a vote of uh, if that isn't praise, I don't I don't know what is. So it's 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 a it's a great movie. It's a great movie. A hundred percent. And I, there's so much to, to talk about there, but I, yeah, sorry. I, I was like, no, 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 no in the question? best way. Like, no. I, I think there's a lot of stuff that I want to come back to, especially composition, but uh, George, uh, you don't like this movie, right? Cause you're, no, a, I'm down you're a this. Neanderthal. Ooh, yeah. This, this film sucks. No, this film is fucking amazing. This film. So I was really, this was one of the films too. I was really excited to go back and revisit because it's been a very long time since I've seen this. So this Seven Samurai, Throne of Blood, and I f- still think Throne of Blood it might be my my favorite so far. I mean, and we still have three more to I go. I think it's still my favorite too. Yeah, and yeah. It, it, I, what it does also because it just, I mean, yeah, that film was amazing. But also, it, one of the things that's interesting to me about also that film, not to talk too much about Throne of Blood, but again, it's it's <laughs> horror elements which are so oh sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, wonderfully executed. But yeah. this, this film is, it's so good. And it's so, I, I, this might be weird, like one singular scene to focus in on, even though it's a, it's an amazing scene. But like, for example, like the scene in which he devastates the interior of that building after he's oh. like slaughtered those guys. 
and just thinking about like with knocking the the, yeah 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 yeah, and just thinking about just kind of the physicality of that scene what it represents how it's executed how the camera follows him around Mm -hmm. it's singular kind of it's it's violent it's i mean it's just everything and just thinking about how real it all feels and i remember watching it yesterday and i uh, briefly watched it again today but like i just had it in the background and again it was that scene that while i was watching and i was enjoying it the entire time but that was like the moment that kind of like took me over like the hill to be like okay this film is like spectacular and and i and i remembered loving it too um yeah it's awesome it's it's ridiculous and of course like mifune's portrayal of this character again oh i mean it, it, it made him an international you know, icon and he, rightfully he, uh, so. Yeah. And he's, he's great, obviously in all the films that came before this, but um, it's funny on the commentary track on the criterion disc, they talk about how even Kurosawa after making this movie realized that they had come to a place now where Mufuni is, is now an icon. And yeah. in all the movies that they, and they didn't make that many after this, uh, yeah, I think two, three. Yeah, it's three like San, Sanjiro and High and, High and Low and then Redbeard. And Redbeard, Redbeard yeah. right? Yep. That 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 he now had felt obliged to present him as Toshiro Mifune, the icon. There was a he couldn't so he couldn't he couldn't make he couldn't be that guy from Seven Samurai again. Um, after this, it was such a uh, you know a sea change. You know. Yeah. And so, yeah, this film is, and I, I've not seen it's the sequels, which I'm really excited about seeing. Oh, so. I, I can't wait to hear what you guys think of Sanjuro because it's not, it's, it's great. It's a, also a masterpiece, a completely different Comple- yeah, it's a kind different of movie. Thing. And, and he's still very much the guy, but mm-hmm. in a, in another kind of picture altogether. And I certainly prefer this one, but it's, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's, uh, it's very different though. And much more overtly I- comic too. I think it gets a bum rap because it's not this movie or, or yeah. that's not that it gets a bum rap, but it's not, people don't talk about it in no. the same way, but no. it's, it's really interesting. Is that the one where he gets frozen um, in carbonite at the end? Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's a bit of a bummer. Right. It's a bit of a bummer as, as a, as he a, finds as out a... he's, he's not, he's a nobody. He's not actually the, you know, the... <laughs> right. Um, so funny story. Like, so I, Brian, your story about going to film forum and seeing repertory stuff inspired a lot of feelings in me. Cause that's Aww. what I did for my, my 12 years in New York. And I, I remember I didn't do it with Kurosawa cause there wasn't one, but I remember going to film forum every day for 16 days and saw every, um, every um robert bresson film oh well like like literally every <laughs> day i was there and it was just like <laughs> like i i was in grad school and i just had the time and i would just sit there you oh. know pay eight bucks for a ticket and it's making me very like god i miss movie theaters. oh i, I miss, miss i miss i miss theaters and, and i miss film for i mean because they would do those mega yeah. series yeah. over the course of you know several weeks i remember when they did their pre-code series they had every pre-code oh it was the best it was movie. so good oh yeah. Uh, I saw you know. the original Maltese Falcon at a pre-code screen. Oh, like there. the like the oh yes, the pre the, the, the BB the, Daniels. Yeah, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's great. It's great. Um, and the and speaking of Yojimbo, the last movie I saw in L.A. before COVID was my first movie at the Beverly, the New Beverly, mm. and it was <clears throat> High Plains Drifter, which is a oh, very cool. very fucked up riff on Yojimbo, yes. like very very. Um, so this movie. Funnily enough, last year when we moved here, I was like sitting on the couch, I had everything to do. And I said, I'm going to watch you, Jimbo. I haven't seen it in a while. I got about 15 minutes in and I went, have I ever seen you, Jimbo? 
<laughs> and what I realized is I had seen it in pieces and chunks for my whole life, but I'd never sure. sat down and watched it beginning to end. That happens a lot. You you realize you'd seen you've seen clips in so many things yeah. that you think you've seen a classic yeah. movie, and then yeah, yeah, yeah. And it ended, and my like jaw was on the floor. I was just like, I can't. I thought I'd seen this whole movie. I've never seen it beginning to end. And I think the biggest takeaway for me was how un samurai-esque it was mm -hmm. about how it's barely a samurai picture and i think yeah. that that's really uh, really amazing and revisiting it today i had a similar experience i mean yeah this movie rocks and i think that the i really want to get into it but i think the thing that i took away this time was i was like okay the story's great performances are great but the vibes of this movie like just sitting there and watching him kind of like hang out in the in the in the, in the and, and just drink and yeah. just like drink yeah. and lounging like, lounging in yeah. the corner like and like they'll to get look out the sleep. window and someone will like <laughs> peer in and give them like a look and you're just like this movie has like serious vibes like it, it's really yeah. kind of a great hangout movie and one oh, thing that totally. i think we totally. should we should chat about we're coming back to Mifune, the anti-hero quality, but like on some level, is this character and this performance, and this is a you know quite a hot take, is this the most important slash influential performance of the 20th century? Is his performance in this movie like it feels like you can see every and maybe this movie too, but you can see every leading male in an action movie after you, this. You movie. could you could make that argument. I mean, it because it's certainly. I don't think there's a Hollywood leading man that predates him that quite, he certainly bridges a gap between someone like say, I don't know, John Wayne or Bogart mm -hmm. even Bogart might be the closest and, and mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and indeed Bogart rose to superstardom as a Dashiell Hammett character as Sam Spade in, in the Maltese Falcon. But, um, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a there's a there's a good argument to be made for sure because look, this in, this inspires Eastwood and uh, Eastwood's mm -hmm. entire perspective. And, and while Eastwood's Man with No Name is in many ways quite different from Mafuni's Sanjuro, it's uh, yeah, I mean, you can you can you can certainly trace uh, this to I don't know John McClane and Die Hard or or uh, you know Denzel. Yeah, sure. In, I mean, like, well, watching all these Tony Scott movies well, recently, yeah. but like Harrison uh, Ford, Harrison Ford, oh, yeah. Harrison Ford. Yeah. yeah, I think a lot about Harrison Ford when I when I watched Mifune in a lot of these movies, but in this one as well. And I don't know that I don't know that Ford ever ever had a role quite like this one, mm -hmm. unless I'm forget unless I'm blanking on on something obvious, but. Um, what I love about him is, you know, that tick that he has where he scratching the back of his yeah. back of mm -hmm. his neck and he's kind of doing this with his shoulder. I mean, I'm doing this a podcast and yeah. no one can see, but I'm but sort of hunching over and scratching. And it's because they made this decision that he's probably got fleas because yeah. he's so fucking ratty and dirty. And so he's probably got fleas. What then it's going to be crass. Like, I don't I can't even think of a. I can't think of a modern equivalent to even that. It's so singular, you know, but yeah, I don't know the, um, the hard boiled persona that he, that he, that he you know, kind of imbues this movie yeah. with, you know, uh, it certainly has its roots in the, in kind of pulp crime fiction. And, and then it's weird because these things all comment on each other. You've got, you've got pulp 20th century pulp crime fiction and classic Westerns influencing this, which then turn around and essentially, birth the spaghetti western as we know it um it, it, yeah it's it, it, so it's it's funny how they kind of 
and this happened as well with you know Magnificent Seven and Seven Samurai. Like these these filmmakers from across the world were sort of riffing on each other and in turn reinventing each other's uh, genres. I don't really know what the fuck I'm talking about. But. Well, they're all really in communication. <laughs> I think that they're, but I do think that they're in communication. We're, 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 we're in communication. There's a better way to put it. I've had a few beers. It's yeah. fine. It's fine. It has many. Please Haven't we keep all? Going. It's, it's quarantine. Yeah. 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 Um, I. I think the thing that what I'm thinking about with Ford is there's this kind of like honorable Ford always, even as Han Solo, like has this sort of like core goodness. I mean, indeed that's like sort of the arc of Han Solo in those movies is he sort of begins as a bit of a Mifune. And then at the end is like, you know, right. This good dude. And in the end, he comes back to that boy from Corellia who (laughs) fell in love with Amelia Clark. (laughs) But it's just like, he doesn't. Oh my god, I forgot about that movie. Jesus. Um, but he kind of like he just exudes this sort of nihilism, and this is something that yeah. George brought up in the notes. Is this movie is so goddamn cynical? George, do you want to talk about the cynicism? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, there's so Hit many me ways with in the which cynicism, it kind of George. manifests itself. Uh, but I mean, so, but yeah. So one of the things that Brian already kind of mentioned, I think Brian already mentioned this too, right? About how what this one of the things that this film is about is about the, the ways in which kind of the emergence of capitalism at this time in Japan is yeah. this kind of really terribly corrosive influence in society. So that all of these like touches of modernity that you see, whether it's, for example, like the guy with the gun mm-hmm. or these battles over influence in terms of like who controls uh, these markets is kind of what dooms everybody. Um, but that yeah. there's no real escape, right? So that like even like Mifune's character who is clearly to some degree like the good guy because he's bringing, let's say, peace to the land. But that peace comes about in this kind of these absolute bloodbaths. He has to like slaughter all these dudes to bring about like this peace in the land. So there's no, there's, I guess, a kind of justice, but it's a justice in a, in the most kind of like brutal fashion. Yeah, because it's not like you, (laughs) it's great because, at the end, you, I think, and I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says, "Well, it's going to be quiet around here now." And yeah. it's like, well, sure, <laughs> there's nobody, there's nobody left, man. I mean, you know, it's, you killed all the people. Like, like you feel the viewer feels okay about it because, and this is a very deliberate thing on Kurosawa's part. The 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 warring families are the most just loathsome, garish, almost not not even almost in some cases overtly cartoony. Mm-hmm. Um, scumbags you know there, there's there's mm-hmm. there's no um there's great subtlety in many of the characterizations in many kurosawa films this is not one of them and that's not a criticism this is this mm-hmm. is this is the point he's trying to make these are this is an allegory and uh yeah it's funny because he is like han solo in as much as um because there is the subplot with with the family you know mm-hmm. and like like ultimately and I think this right. is why the movie is palatable. It's the reason Fistful of Dollars is as well. And Fistful of Dollars takes this subplot uh, a bit farther and makes it more front and center of the of the movie than 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 this film. But <clears throat> you know, he yeah, he comes to town to make some money and to amuse himself and to uh, watch these people squirm. But he is derailed and in, in, indeed nearly defeated because of his extra show of real samurai chivalry at that key moment, you mm-hmm. know, where he 
where he frees the woman and and sends the family off. That act is what exposes him essentially, right? And and nearly undo, undoes him, which I've always found kind of interesting. It doesn't, and then it doesn't come up much in a lot of the studies of the movie. The studies of a lot of you know, I've got Donald Ritchie's book here, which is really great about Kurosawa and he really focuses on the black comedy and the allegory and the fact that there's no redeeming qualities in any of these people. But um, that's a very, to me, purposeful. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Wrinkle. Um, which, uh, which is, which is, which is, which I've always found kind of interesting, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's about, it's, as you say, it's about, um, it's about commerce, you know, the, the a, a big factor of this film, which is not done at all in fistful of dollars, that these characters are eliminated. But it's it's an essential part of this movie is the idea that these criminal organizations are in bed with legitimate businesses. Mm-hmm. You know, it's as you said right. in your description, it's the sake merchant and the the silk merchant. Um, that's a huge part of this movie, and and you know the movie ends, of course, with these two silk merchants. You know, as you say, one of them going insane and killing the other, which seems like a sort of wish fulfillment that Kurosawa is yeah positing because. You know like that, mm-hmm. that, that, they, that these that these industries will eventually eat each other alive, which, as we know, they did not and they do not. Prince calls it apocalyptic in his commentary, which I was listening to mm-hmm. today, and he says it's this kind of like uh, it crescendos into this kind of apocalypse whereby, yeah, the entire town, let's say, is leveled. And again, if you extrapolate it in this kind of allegorical sense, that it's this kind of as you said, Brian, this, possibly this desire on Kurosawa's. Uh, part to kind of like see to bring about like a certain kind of like leveling of the capitalist mm-hmm. system entirely. Yeah. But also like for example, the going back to like the cynicism, not necessarily the cynicism, but also thinking about again the randomness of it all too, about how the film begins with him just tossing the stick <sighs> in the great. air. Which is yeah, it's so great. great. So he's at this crossroads, <laughs> he just tosses the stick and it's like, all right, fuck it. It's just yeah, go there. That's where I mean, I'm going. Oh. I got I got nothing I got fleas, a sword, and a whole bunch of time. I got nothing else to do. I'm just gonna go down this road. And that's how the entire story unfolds. Even that, right? There's just kind of the randomness of it all. The contingency well, which sets it all into motion is amazing. One it's of fantastic. the sm- small things that I feel like in addition to Mufune's sort of arc as a character in terms of revealing that he actually, you know, cares about this family. He cares about these things. He has a heart. He's not just in it for, you know, chaos and money is that that family that we see at the beginning, the son who has the argument Mm. with the father is the son who he spares later in the movie and says like, go home to your, go home to your, um, and like whatever he says to him. Exactly. And it, it it's terrific too, because you've forgotten about that guy. Yeah, a hundred percent, and it's yeah. a weird kind of redemption for the character in terms not in Mufune in some ways, but also for the for this young boy who's like sort of fallen in with the tough crowd. And mm-hmm. I think you know it's interesting that that's the the choice that Kurosawa makes. One thing that we've talked about a lot, but is harder to parse in terms of cultural questions of cultural you know and culture and politics is that Kurosawa's sort of politics are a little they're a little all over the map. Like he's clearly someone who believes in like a collective good, but also is deeply concerned with the individual within the larger collective. And like, I think seven samurai is obviously like the great movie he made about, um, you know, collectivism and, and working together and, and, you know, helping the poor. But this movie is just like a giant fuck you to like kind of amazingly the most like overtly political movie I feel like he's ever made. Yeah. And a big kind of, Maybe not a fuck you, but a but a real subversion of his own work and his own star's mm-hmm. previous right. work in some ways. Uh, 
Uh, I mean, austere is probably the wrong word to use to describe something like Seven Samurai, but 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 it it almost feels austere when you're <laughs> when you're watching this one uh, because right. it's it's so down and dirty, um, and 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 as such, uh, if, if you're if you're talking about one that you might want to give somebody who who might be afraid of an old movie or a Japanese movie or both, right? Um, Along with Seven Samurai, this is the one. I mean, this thing plays just like gangbusters. Yeah. It, Gang, it, it's it really does. It's just um, again, it's so tight. Just yeah. just as a pure execution of story and 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 telling us, just telling us. I've got it on right now, as I said, and just just you can watch it with no sound on, and just the visuals are just, are so arresting and 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 dynamic, you know. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it, it makes it doesn't surprise me at all that it was his biggest. Did you say it was his biggest? I know it was his biggest hit in the West. Was it his biggest hit at home as well? It was, was a huge hit. It was a huge hit. I think but it yeah. was, but I think it was his biggest Western hit. I, I would also assume it's one of the first films that he made that got, and I'm I'm a little bit guessing here, but that right. got a. Unvarnished, un- untouched, uh, probably pretty close to original release because for years mm. so many of these films came as oddities to the U.S. and they were written about like in pretty racist ways right. by major film critics. But like, sure, I like, think like five is, years later too. Yeah, like exactly. Sure, right. Or the writing would be like, you know, the exoticism of Japan makes the film like <laughs> harder, and you're just like, oh god. Yeah. But thanks, Bosley Crowther. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or like yeah, exactly, literally, exactly. Right. But this this film feels so unmistakably modern. Yeah. yeah. That or contemporary yeah. that it, it doesn't feel like it's aged a day. You know, a couple things that yeah. I that that really stick out to me. Um, the playing of both sides is obvious. The sort of like cynic with a heart of gold, but also the sort of hierarchical buildup to the villains I think is really cool. And mm-hmm. the, is this the first time we have like a seven foot tall, like bond jaws oh, henchman in a movie? Man, he's great. <laughs> it may be. Yeah. He's, a, he, he's incredible. There's an he's amazing, amazing array of like grotesque figures. The faces. Well, yeah. even just the faces they're pulling like um, uh, the, and I'm terrible. I'm so horrible with, with the names. So um, forgive me, but it's the actor who appears in a ton of Kurosawa's films who plays um, the other brother. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, not Tetsuo and Nakadai, but the other brother. Um, who's kind of, Kato. Yes. Who's yeah. wonderful. And with the teeth. Ton, with the teeth and just yeah. the, this ridiculous Amazing. face he's pulling the whole movie. That's face. He looks like a rabbit. Which yeah. is it's it's completely ridiculous, but but the perfect, Just absolutely right. it really perfect, is. You know, um, yeah. and then that that final showdown where they're cutting from that you know all time top five movie image shot of Mufune alone coming in with the wind billowing, uh, cutting to the to the goons, the ten guys marching toward him, and just the composition of that shot and all those crazy faces. And body types, so good, yeah. And Nick Nakadai with the gun. The way he points the gun is even weird. Oh, I just like love how he always has it like tucked away. Well, it's funny. In this last rewatch, I realized he doesn't know how to point a gun because he's never seen a movie with someone pointing a gun. <laughs> <laughs> so he's wow. like, he hasn't, so he's like the, he hasn't watched the Bogart film. That's the problem. He clearly hasn't yeah. seen the Bogart film. So <laughs> it's like, how do I hold this? And and so he's holding it in this absurd way. But 
he doesn't know what to do with a gun. It's, you know. I don't know whose decision that is, but it's such an amazing decision. Like, so many of these characters have, again, like these little ticks that make them so realized and so fully actualized. It's amazing. So, like, yeah, the way he holds the gun, again, Mufuni's ticks, like, whatever. Like, so many of them have, like, these little kind of touches that really make you feel like eats. Totally. the chicken the way he eats the chicken or whatever it is that's boiling the when dumplings? he comes like yeah the dumplings yeah. it looks yeah. like chi- maybe it's, maybe i was it's because i haven't eaten a carb but i was like oh that's chicken <laughs> but like, like, chicken. like the way he's blowing on it and just like just enjoying it yeah. and like mm-hmm. and the rice like every it's just well yeah it's such an incredible physical performance that yeah, you're absolutely right even just watching him do business like eating some rice out of a bowl with some fucking chopsticks is mm-hmm. somewhat riveting Oh, absolutely. Uh, it, it, it's such every every physical. Actually, I'm, I'm, as I look up at the TV now, I'm watching him pour tea, and it's mm-hmm. I, I, it's spellbinding. That's that's I guess yeah, it's a fucking movie star, you know. Um, it's all there is yeah, to he it. really is like the truly one of the greatest movie stars. Like we we sort <sighs> yeah. of it's it's kind of unbelievable how how like still every second of the of the film. Every, that he's just completely magnetic. Um, the actor yeah. who played the giant enforcer, by the way, is named Sunagoro Rashomon. No, there you go. Fabulous. Good callback. What a kick-ass name. And and who plays Ganji? Who plays the old man? Ganji is played by Ijiro Tono. He's who, fucking great. Really, really amazing. He is in Seven Samurai. Yes. Um. And he's also in, he's in a lot of Jidagechi shows, like a lot of the series that they produced in Japan. He's in Tora oh, Tora okay. Tora. Oh. And he is in Tokyo Story, Yasuhiro Ozu's mm-hmm. like masterpiece that um, if folks have not seen is worth seeing. We did a, a, a brief episode on um, No Regrets for Our Youth. Mm, great movie. Where we talked, you know, we talked about, when we talked a lot about um, Satsuko Hara, you know, who's mm-hmm. in only a couple uh, Kurosawa movies, but definitely, definitely, definitely worth checking out. Was it not unlike the American? And I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm learning more about the behind the scenes of it all as I'm kind of delving more into this. But was it not unlike the U.S. studio system in that you had you had a couple of major studios, Toho being very one of them, similar, and you had your sort of contract players and directors. At so those there was studios? Toho, which which was sort of the big, you know, the big one from let's say like 1940 until, and you know, I'm not an expert on this, but like 1940s till the 60s. There was mm. also Daie, that was a big one, and Kurosawa made a few films there. Um, okay. The the compelling thing about that period, and it's worth reading the Galbraith books for this, is there was yeah. huge questions around unionization and who belonged to the mm. unions, mm. and. And and how they did casting and how actors could be traded similarly to the no, it's the, not, the, not the dissimilar system. to the yeah totally system yeah um, and then this film I believe the film yeah the film that Kurosawa basically when he went to make Hidden Fortress Toho was like this is too expensive like we can't afford to continue to finance these movies they weren't doing I don't I think that they were not doing quite as well as they had been doing hmm. um, and so Yojimbo is the second of his films that a second or third that was financed between Toho and Kurosawa productions, which was his own company that he built. And there's, there's actually, this is super inside baseball, but I think you'll appreciate it in, I think in the, for the film, the quiet duel, which is an interesting movie. He had to, he formed a production company with other well-known Japanese directors to put that film together. Somewhat Mm. similar to the company that Coppola Friedkin and I'm, 
banking on Sly. Right, uh, Zoe, that, uh, the direct, yeah, or director's group. So before oh, the director's Zoe Trope, yeah, there's director's Zoe group. Trope, that right. did, and so it's kind of similar. They've been trying for years. I mean, you know, as far back as Pickford, Fairbanks, and Griffith yeah. and Chaplin doing the original United Artists, you know, um, trying to work, trying to do your own thing within within the system. Yeah, and I and think it that, often didn't work out the way they yeah. wanted. <laughs> well, and it worked out for Kurosawa until I, I think ultimately he stopped working with Mifune. I think that that mm. was, you know, and then he makes. Well, there's a big tough, dry tough period tough. for yeah. a while yeah. there. Yeah, um, and that yeah. But, but, but that, without like yeah, when did that start? I guess late sixties. Sixty six. I mean, Redbeard is, a, is yeah. like sixty five, sixty six, and then yep. that's it. And then and then there's a big gap between that and uh, is it Kagamusha? Or is Kagemusha there is like 1980. Kage is like yeah. late 70. So that's financed by that's George Lucas, Lucas and Coppola. And yeah, Coppola, right? That's a really good movie too. That's kind of that's the 1980. 80s. Yeah, right. And then he makes Ron, and then Ron, right? And right. you know, arguably one of the most, you know, I mean, it's absolutely tremendous movie that we still have an episode we recorded that we have to release. That movie is yeah. oh cool. So oh yeah, that's yeah, an yeah. amazing. Movie. Yeah, I'm looking forward to rewatching that on, on on another podcast I do called Screen Drafts. I we've we've been going through um, adaptations of Shakespeare, and um, the that's... next episode is all about movies inspired by Shakespeare. So we'll get to Throne of Blood and Ron most likely. So good. So Bad good. sleep watch... well. You know, got to watch Titus. Which oh yeah, Titus. We've already talked about. No, we've rules. already. Oh, cool. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. that's actually the play. These the the next episode is movies that aren't the play themselves, but it's like impossible you know. to get to ah. get that. It's not, it's not streaming anywhere, right? Titus. I Titus, have Titus, the... Titus is out of print. It's like yeah. so difficult I have to get. Yeah. The DVD, George. Send, yeah. Send me a copy. Um, let's come back. So we were talking a little bit earlier about like movies that you know recommending a Kurosawa movie to people and. Mm. One thing that I thought about was, and I didn't really occur to me until right now, is there's one of my favorite moments in this movie. And this is Kurosawa's second film in wide. You know, actually shot in wide. I think a lot of people assume that all of his movies were shot in wide, but it's really Hidden Fortress on where he does this. Wow. And there's a scene where um, the war, the gangster and his wife and his son are debating what to do with mm-hmm. Mufune's oh, character. the composition of that shot. And, oh. Yeah. Yes. So the the wide angle lens with the close up, and they're all up in each other's shit. (laughs) And he knows. And you, I'd love to hear you talk about this. He knows how to use widescreen for close for or the Mm -hmm. a wide angle lens in the close and the medium and all the way across the board. And it actually reminds me of when people were weirded out that uh, Tarantino made hateful eight and made this like 65 millimeter movie and most right. of it is just watching and it was in a people room. talk to each other well because because people have this idea that widescreen is only for you know fucking lawrence of arabia yeah. right and and uh and look in the hands of someone who doesn't know what the fuck they're doing it would be strange to shoot a movie right. in 70 millimeter in a single room the way hateful eight was but right but my god i love I, you're talking to an enormous hateful eight fan so um mm-hmm. so i i was fully on board with that and yes you're right. Not, not not unlike Hateful Eight, much of this film, you know, there's certainly are the big shots uh, in the in the sort of T-shaped town you know, street that have scope, for mm-hmm. lack of a better word, and are bigger. But most of the movie is is indoors. It's 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 them kind of hide. It's it's people peeking out and hiding and and, and conspiratorial, like the shot you just mentioned. Um, 
It's a hangout movie. But I can't it really imagine is. it. But I can't imagine it without the widescreen. I mean, I right. can't imagine the, the it without the, the the way he's able to get so much detail and 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 really hone in on what's fascinating about these faces by, by utilizing the format. And I'm not a as as your listeners can probably tell, not a cinematographer and don't know much about lenses at all. I can only really talk about just <laughs> how you feel when you watch it, but um, yeah, it, but it's uh, it, it's it's really incredible and used in, as I said, and you'll get to this, I guess, maybe in your next episode. Used to incredible effect in Sanjuro, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, like like all you know, and in a very a very different movie, but he's clearly really figuring out what he can do, you know, uh, uh, with 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 the format um, and, and and all these interiors. But as a result, you really. F- I think, you know, the reason I think it's such an iconic star making performance is because you're so, because you're so close in, you're really in his head. You, mm-hmm. you, it gives you this feeling that you are in the brain as his wheels are turning and he is figuring out how to manipulate these fucking idiots. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then when he is brought low and beaten up, you're, you're in his, his, not only his physical pain, but his sort of, uh, survival mode and survival instinct and his, 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 um, that amazing shot. That's again, another very tight close up where the light from mm-hmm. the, 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 um, the lock on the trunk that he's going to use to hide in kind of hits his eye and bright amazing shot. Illuminates. Holy shit. Yeah. And oh, <laughs> that's, that's cinema. I mean, that's cinema. That's <laughs> cinema, sense. baby. That's cinema folks. Um, Which is the original title of this podcast, by the way. We were that's, that's cinema, folks. Yeah, that's, that's cinema, that's, baby. That's cinema, an audio-based format. <laughs> that escape sequence, too, is so damn good. Oh, it's great. It's great. And that was where he was, and I, I, I learned this from the commentary track. I had, did not know this until I listened to the commentary track. So, But uh, that was very much inspired by that movie I mentioned earlier, uh, the glass the key, glass key. Mm-hmm. where I guess, and I actually watched it funnily enough. It was just on TCM last week and I managed to notice it and record it. So I'm going to watch it this week, but I, I guess there's a sequence in that, that for 1942 was pretty, um, pretty shockingly violent and somehow made it past the censors, um, where he's beaten up and held by goons and has to escape. And, and it was a big influence on that on the sequence in Yojimbo. So yeah, the, the to, makeup to on Mifune in this, when he yeah, gets totally keyed up, looks like amazing. Like you great. look at him like, he looks like he got really got the shit beat. Yeah. Oh, I'm watching. I'm looking at the shot right now. I'm and actually, at, the, the shot I, mean, I, just, <laughs> I mean, he gets, he gets tossed around too. And that's definitely, it doesn't look like it's fake. It looks like that's like legitimately him being thrown around this room at certain moments. Well, yeah, the violence, the violence is so, um, it's, it's actually an incredible hat trick because there's no real gore in it. Um, you know, well, there's yeah. well, the, yeah, like the arm though, like the arm. There's the arm, yeah, there's which comes really hands, early the on. The dog with the hand. There's the hand the dog, with the dog. What a great visual but, gag! Which is amazing. Oh my god, talk about the, the look he gives. I know, and the look he, he gives. Yeah, the dog. he's like the fuck kind of town <laughs> is this? It's a great, this? great <laughs> movie of looks. This is a yeah. great. You know, it's interesting to that point that like I would. I'm not to get like cranky and old, but my favorite, even though Do I it, love Liam. art, artsy, arts, I love artsy shit. I love eight hour Hungarian movies. I will watch them. But my favorite genre of movies is action movies. Like I just love sure. action movies. I mean, that's like that they're, 
You're a human being, Liam. It's so compelling. Thank you, guys. Thank you for being there for me to admit that I, as a white dude, love action movies. Is that... Talk about it. Talk about it. Don't hold back. This podcast got weird about an hour in. Um, (laughs) Instead of talking about our emotions about Tony Scott. It's like I'm going going back and watching these, these things, and it's like what makes action movies really great is the narrative momentum and the looks and the moments and the fact that, like, this movie, again... There's not that much action, but everything mm. is built on this incredible sustaining and building of tension and knowing mm-hmm. when to pull back and knowing when to to unleash it and knowing that it has to build to something. And ultimately that it's like about characters doing, in this case, like something that goes against the nature that, that we think they have. It's just unbelievable how incredibly we're sitting here being like, this sequence is awesome. This sequence is awesome. But like the thing that we're always going to remember is the looks and the Mm -hmm. way he turns and how he wanders away at the end of the movie. And it's just, I mean, that's like the biggest Mm -hmm. thing that I think this movie is influential is that Kurosawa and Mifune invented a language for being a cynical badass on screen. Yes. A cynical badass, but, but also again, and, and, and this speaks to your point, you know, when the violence occurs it it, it 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 comes in these kind of explosions right you know like the the the, 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 the sequences where he mows through these dudes with his sword are pretty fucking fast mm-hmm. you know um no cutaway i mean almost always in a single take which is mm-hmm. amazing um really amazing and uh and smarter people than i with more of a knowledge of history um can talk about on some other podcast but apparently like the the, the fighting style that he's using and the various moves he's using have a real kind of are rooted in yeah. a kind of historical. I don't know what that is, so I'm not going to try to. Prince talks right. about it. Yeah, he talks about. Yeah, like he talks about the commentary that he uses. Yeah. Yes, again, like so deliberate. There's no. There's mm-hmm. everything is is kind of painstakingly. Uh, every decision is very deliberate, and um, oh, but but what I was going to say is when you were talking about like the looks you remember, the one that, that, that genuinely moves me every time I see it. And I think it's a much more moving sequence than it's version that exists in a fistful of dollars. And that's when he's hiding out at the end of the movie by the river in the shack. Yeah. And the Cooper comes back and tells him that his boy has been taken and Mafuni's face, the way it turns, Mm -hmm is it's genuinely moving because you've invested in that relationship and it's not sentimental, but it belies the notion that this is a movie entirely stocked with amoral assholes that yes. purely are believing in nihilism because you really feel for, and then when he, and then when the Cooper's like, it's called, I got you, man. I got, I got, I got a sword for you. Um, that scene happens almost beat for beat in Fistful of Dollars. And with all respect to Fistful of Dollars, a movie that I also love, um, it doesn't hit in the mm-hmm. same way, that scene, um, for whatever reason. Um, maybe Eastwood simply at that stage in his career just wasn't the actor Mafuni is in this yeah. movie. I mean, that's very simple. Could be it. Um, but uh, um, but that, that, was, that really struck me the last time I, the last time I watched it was how, how effective, just as a piece of... Drama. I think, look, the action movies that work, the ones that endure, even the ones that are completely bonkers are the ones where the characters make some degree of sense. A hundred percent. Yeah. You mentioned Tony Scott a second ago, like his best movies. It's because the characters, they make sense. Right. It, they could be, it could be in the most outlandish 
trappings around them. The reason Deja the first vu. Deja vu, <laughs> like the first the reason the first Die Hard is the best Die Hard is that McLean in that movie makes sense mm-hmm. as a human being <laughs> reacting right. to things around him and making choices. It's the simplest fundamentals of drama um, that are often forgotten. Uh, I guess I'm sounding like a cranky old man now, but, 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 but you feel that's true. hundred percent. Or even you something feel that as crazy guy. as Indiana Jones and the temple of doom. The, the reason that that movie works and it doesn't move. There are plenty of people who would say it doesn't, but for a lot of valid reasons, but my, my point is as crazy as a movie like that gets where there's no remote realism at all. Someone like Harrison Ford, like Mafune anchors it in a kind of, uh, if not realism, reality. If that makes, if that makes well, any sense. Well, they're both also actors who do a really good job of being the guy on camera who gets as close to looking at the lens and being like, you "Fucking believe this?" As <laughs> anyone can. Yeah. Like, yeah, and Willis does that in, in Die Hard too. hundred percent. Like, like, what yeah. the hell is happening? Yeah. Right. Like, like the, this is ridiculous. The, you know, when you think about like, and that's why it works. You know, to, to Temple of Doom. My favorite moment in Temple of Doom is the part when he says, "Prepare to meet Kali in hell." In and, hell. And he, yeah, and he cuts <laughs> the thing. It's one of the few moments in in Harrison Ford's acting career where he's not just kind of like. What the fuck? In the best yeah. way, like yeah, he yeah. really goes for the action hero moment there, which isn't yeah. necessarily well, his he's, tendency. He's, he's been driven to madness by that crazy fucking movie yeah. at that point. But um, right, right, totally. Um, but 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 yeah, I think there's just there's a sort of, and it's a it's a term that's often misused, and I'm sure I've misused it plenty of times in bullshit Hollywood meetings as I'm pitching something. But there's a there's a groundedness to the best. Mm-hmm. Star and, and even as I'm saying it now, I'm like, oh God, shut up, Brian. But 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 it's true. You've you've got to have a kind of anchor in these things, um, particularly in something like this, which, as we've discussed, you know, the the performances around him, apart from the old man, um, are 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 over the top. I mean, they're caricatures. Mm-hmm. They're it's it's the fucking demon Muppet show. Uh, you know, which was also the original title of this podcast. Of this podcast, well, this is, this is great. I've really honed in on, 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 on what makes you guys tick. Yeah, but it really is. It's the Demon Muppet Show. I mean, that shot that I talked about right. earlier, where they're where they're where they're walking toward him. I mean, it's lunacy. Yeah, it's, <laughs> there's like this tall hulking figure. Like, it's like, yeah, yeah, it's it's ridiculous, but it never feels. It's so it's such an incredible balance of tone because it never feels like a spoof. Mm. easily could right it's certainly a commentary to a degree um but it's not a spoof you know it's not campy yeah and 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 much of that has to do with mifune but 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 um but even just in the calibrating of the tone even that like the the apocalypse scene that that you mentioned earlier where they're um where the one family finally gets the gets the the jump on the other family Mm. and smokes them out in that scene even those grotesque kind of uh, over the top cartoony characters uh, take on a degree of brutality and danger where you're not, it isn't, it's a pretty upsetting scene. Well, when they kill, mm-hmm. yeah, when they you kill know? the woman, especially they, too. Yeah. yeah. And you just like, co- yeah. comes and in. she's horrible and she's yeah. been awful. And sh- but, but even so you're like, Oh shit. Yeah. And they just, um, not even giving her a chance to just totally yeah, murk her. And obviously yeah. the, the, the kid as well. It's, it's, it's a brutal scene. And, the, and, and that brutality, and it really hits hard because I think, as 
up until that oh i'm watching it right now it's funny every time i reference something <laughs> the scene comes up so the um, commentary track yeah. yeah i know uh uh but when it, it it works because again it's those it's those explosions of violence and they're a lot of fun until they're not and this is still fun but there's a there's a kind of a a pall over it a little bit of of horror and and so much so that 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 Mifune, you know, he, he has to come back and write this. Like in a weird way, he's avenging this other family, even though they don't yeah. deserve it. Well, because that's what this also, was just too fucking much. That's what also you like know? the moments of gore do too, where again you feel mm. like there's so many of these comedic elements too. But again, whether it's a severed arm, the spray of blood, um, the dude at the very end who's like drowning in his own puddle of blood, like those really mm. grotesque moments again Great. hit home in a way. Because they are so selective, there's so few. But when they're there, again, the stakes are raised, and you're like, okay, there are mm. there are people that are dying or being slaughtered in front of your eyes. Well, I yeah. think that so the that violence becomes the, real in real specific way. I yeah, also think that that's definitely. an important component of of action movies that can get lost in our contemporary sort of like sure. you know action movie world where it's of heavy heavily CGI, you know, huge figures destroying mm. cities like. Mm-hmm. You know, not to, to to criticize those movies, but more to point out that like my favorite action movies, I think, are all rooted in like that the fact that violence should be unnatural. So you watch a movie like, you know, Lethal Weapon is a great example of a movie where they show up at that prostitute's house and they talk to the kids across the street and then they turn to talk to her and the house blows up and it's like a truly shocking, mm. crazy moment. And that's kind of like where action movies are at their best when you're like, mm-hmm. oh. Like what we're seeing is not supposed to be happening. Like it's rooted in a in a real thing that's happening. Well, yeah, people. like like remember like like the like the, that's remember Speed. Like yes. the reason Speed, I to me the the moment I always think about in Speed is with um, the actor who's a sort of sort of I'm friendly with named Beth Grant, who great character actress who you've seen in a bazillion things. Um, but she's the woman in Speed who tries to get off the bus. Do you remember? Oh, yeah. She's like, I yeah, can't no. take it anymore. And I can't tire, get off the, the bus. Tire. Yeah. And it's that Oof. scene. That, but see, that's what makes that movie. That that, that that and other scenes throughout that movie, which is a ridiculous movie by any measure. I mean, you look at it, you know, this is a ridiculous movie. But but uh, it again, it's characters who make sense and and characters right. who react to situations in a way that human beings might. And this is crazy that this bus is out of control and this poor woman is brutally killed when she steps out of line. And it, I think you're right. I think a lot of modern action movies, particularly in a, in a post practical effects world mm-hmm. succumb to uh, a lack of, um, yeah, just a lack of, of uh, there's something that's uh, tactile about. Yeah, the there's no verisimilitude. Well, then again, going, yeah. back, going back to that scene where he just, all he does is lay waste to the interior of that house, but it's just right. like, it's legitimately him. It's legitimately mm-hmm. he's really carrying a sword and he's actually hacking and destroying this set to pieces. And it works because it's real and it's such a simple yeah. scene, but it, it works because again, the, the stakes are high. It's really him doing it. And there's again, there's a verisimilitude mm-hmm. to it that you can't that CGI just doesn't at this moment at least kind of bring with it. Yeah, totally. Totally. Well, it's also just to belabor your point george it's similar to the arrows in throne Please. of blood yeah. when they're shooting oh. real arrows at mifune <laughs> that yeah. i mean that might be the greatest <laughs> i don't know Ten if there's a better shoot. action sequence 
I mean, I, I hesitate to even call it an action sequence because it's so much more than that. But, but it's probably yeah. I mean, I also it maybe the stabbing scene in Psycho, or there's you know the in terms of violence on film, you know, or the shooting in Bonnie and Clyde, like it's up there. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Um, that that is that is that's an incredible. Oh, that scene's amazing. Better than Shakespeare too. It's an improvement on Shakespeare. So much better that he's killed by his own men. You know? Yeah, that's also a movie that that you know not to, to to go too far off the point. That is almost like this remarkable reduction or minimalist or sort of like riff on incredible source material, right? Like it's just so oh, yeah. simple and pure and like gets out of its own way and doesn't like overburden the point and moves away from the language in such extraordinary ways. I think that like that's also a really great feature of Kurosawa, and this is really obvious, but like. Like you said, you can just watch these movies and not hear what anyone is saying. Mm -hmm. Mm. And you still have like a totally, Mm -hmm. I think what makes a movie different from TV, even though I think that that's arguably not true anymore, but like, especially in this period, you watch a movie with sound off and it's still like a a fully realized experience because they're thinking in these like different terms. Well, and he's able to, uh, he's able to come to have such a command, a visual command of genre in in a way that, as you say, he takes something like Shakespeare and Throne of Blood and filters it through, you know, uh, essentially Kabuki theater. I mean, I mean, the the, the performances mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking about Throne of Blood. Sorry. Sorry. No, it was about fine. to happen. It's my <laughs> favorite. It's but fine. but, but it, it actually it, it 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 speaks to why Mifune is such an incredible actor, because like that's not the same guy. That's not the same human being. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sanjiro right. in this movie uh, and, and his character in, in Throne of Blood. I mean, that's a very still stylized kind of kind of um, no theater sort of uh, very, very, very uh, in many ways. Um, like, again, the faces he's pulling are right. Grotesque in a way in Throne of Blood, whereas this is a kind of natural, you know, almost methody sort of living in an, in the environment as you can, you can feel the ticks mm-hmm. on his back of his neck kind of performance, completely different. Um, and an Chris absolute, is the same, you know, there's an absolutism to the performance in throne of blood. If that makes sense, it's all mm. like living in, in relationship and in serve and serving the tragedy or whatever you yeah. want to call it. It's, I don't know if throne of blood is quite a tragedy in the way Macbeth is, but he's in service of that story. Yojimbo again is so interesting because it, He's just kind of a guy who's like my, you know, there's a certain amount of like Meh, to you to his performance in this movie like, in the best way where he's just yeah. like, what the fuck? Like, it's just much more lived in and less. I can't wait for you guys. I can't wait for you guys to watch Sanjiro and I hear can't you guys wait, talk yeah. about that. Because really I mean, his, some of his, some of his Sanjiro isms, because what's fun about Sanjiro is uh, it's aware of the fact that its predecessor was an enormous hit. Like it definitely has mm. that sequel thing where it like it the, the the Yojimbo theme pops in at key moments to which is fun. Oh, that's really um, interesting. Like it's got a f- in many ways it's a complete repudiation of Yojimbo. Like it's like it's this is not the same movie and we've put this character in and indeed he'd been developing the story and then he refitted it to have Sanjuro be the lead. It was it was it's based on a novel. So it's like is, the second half it, of Don Quixote, where it's like a kind of a reflection on the first half of Don Quixote. Kind of, or or I was going to have a much more crass example where it was uh, it's like Die Hard Two, uh, Die Harder, where <laughs> they had a novel 
And they were like, let's put John McClane into it. Um, uh, And so they did. And that's what they did with with Sanjuro. But but there are all these amazing, I mean, his introduction in the movie, which I won't spoil because I think think one of you hasn't seen it yet, but it's just so perfectly him. He, he, and, and it makes one a little sad that maybe there wasn't another one. Although he went on to play a version of the character in a few other, there's a Zadoichi film with him. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he definitely drew on that. There's another one. There's a movie he made. I haven't watched it yet with Charles Bronson where he's red sun. That's it. Where he's basically doing Sanjuro. I'm told. Um, so he definitely drew on that, you know, that's um, one of our bonus persona. episodes for later oh, in the cool. season. We're going to talk oh, about Red good. Sun, especially just because it's such a it's such an action specific. Like I'm really I've never seen it. I'm really curious to see Charles Bronson and, and I mean, Mifune well, on screen. I suppose I, I imagine you've heard this since you guys have been researching him, but I, I I only heard for the first time. I don't know how this ever escaped me that he was the original choice for Obi Wan Kenobi. What? Yeah, in Star Wars. I, I did not know yeah. that. I yeah. thought it was wow. this, I thought it was Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that how that rumor started? George, give me George, give me Please, a yes. line reading of Dustin something. Hoffman as Obi Wan Kenobi. Go. Oh my god, I can't do Dustin Hoffman. You know I can't do Dustin Hoffman. Dustin you should Hoffman have said is... James Dalfini <laughs> or yeah, Al Pacino. Okay. Well, the only two impersonations that I could do on our podcast. Well, now I've got to hear at least Pacino. Or do Pacino? Dalfini. Give oh me. God. Are you yeah, serious, dude? You're putting me in the spot here. Give me, let's see, what's the best line? What's the... You got to do something about uh, the Death Star having a big ass. She had a great I ass. I don't want to be rude, but Obi-Wan Kenobi never talked about the yeah, Death Star. Yeah, for a second I was ass. like, what? And no, then of I course yeah, we yeah. got the reference. I was kind of hoping we were going to get like, um, you know, that's a name I've not heard in a long time. A long time. <laughs> a long time. Give me all you got. Here's. I think we could do this for hours, so I'm going to cut it yeah. off before it yeah. goes on for Good too idea. long. Uh, Good Brian, idea. thank you so much for doing this with us. Thanks again, Brian. My pleasure. This this was um, this was a delight, gentlemen. We can't wait for the uh, yeah for the series more. to come out. Oh, me too. I mean, look, and I, it, it's this is very very early in the development stage. I mean, I'm literally just working on my initial notes for the producers, and it's it's there are many steps before it's ever mm-hmm. a TV show, and hopefully. A year or two from now, when people are listening to back episodes, it actually became a TV show because <laughs> there's been plenty of things I've worked on that didn't. That but didn't. Uh, but it's been it's been an amazing, if nothing else, it's been an amazing excuse to watch this incredible movie over and over again. You know, so and um, to come and talk to us, it with you, gentlemen. We loved having you. Tell us a little bit more about. I mean, you've got you know a few things going on, but we'd love to hear a little more about screen drafts. So we can we'd love to plug. Oh that yeah, well you guys suggest an episode. So you guys should come on. I'd love talk to, to yeah. Clay and Ryan and have you guys come on. You guys would would do amazing on that. Um, no, it's just it's it's not it's not my podcast. It's just one that I've recurred on a lot this mm-hmm. past year and a half, um, and it's just a, a terrific uh, movie podcast wherein. Uh, uh, Guests competitively collaborate, as Clay termed it, to to draft to draft the definitive seven top seven list of any given topic. Oh, and sometimes uh. that's sometimes that is expanded to eleven or thirteen in various other versions. And occasionally you'll do something called a super draft where you'll tackle the entire filmography of somebody or but most of the time it's seven, which proves to be a lot harder than a top ten. Um, in a lot of great ways. And basically, yeah, I can see that. if you two were to go on, let's say you two were to go on and draft the films of Toshiro Mifune, you would each, independent of each other, make your top seven mm. list of Mifune films. You would then meet 
uh, Clay and Ryan, the hosts, would um, give you a trivia question. Um, and then, Liam, let's say you got that right. You would then get to pick oh, your shit. position. You would, get, you would then get to pick your position. You oh, could okay, have... okay, because it's a draft. Exactly. and But each of you gets a veto, so you can use your veto to move up a title you think is too low or eliminate a title entirely. So it's sort of a fun game that inspires great film discussion. I've It's been basically my lifesaver hobby in this past year during the pandemic. And, and I've I gone on imagine. and talked about... I've talked about everything from Disney 2D animated films to Philip Seymour Hoffman to the films of Max von Sydow to Shakespeare films to 1960s musical to 1930s Warner Brothers pictures. <laughs> so it, it, any time you want to tune in, you'll find a topic that interests you. What's so, your, um, what was your top seven Phil Hoffmans? Do you remember? Um, my, well, okay. I, I, will say, I will say, folks, if you want to listen to the episode, turn it off now so you can listen. Because <laughs> um, I don't – but uh, no my top yeah. – well, again, I did this in collaboration with my dear friend right, right, and right, colleague, right, right. Uh, Mila Bellhart, um, who was a writer on a, a show that I, uh, a writer's room that I ran last year and is a, a dear friend. So we ended up uh, settling on uh, Magnolia, number one. Okay. So it was Ooh. Magnolia. Yeah. Yeah. Magnolia. Wow. Um, which weirdly was both of our number ones, actually. That was one of those. Great where, movie. Yeah. Uh, we, it was uh, Magnolia. I'm trying to remember. It was Magnolia, The Master. Boogie Nights, so a rare screen drafts, one director dominating the top three. Interesting. Interesting. So it was, um, so it was uh, Magnolia, Master, Boogie Nights. Um, gosh, now I'm forgetting. I want to say Doubt, maybe. Okay, uh-huh. he's great in Cap- that. Capote, I mean. uh, almost famous and talented, Mr. Ripley. Oh. Uh-huh. So when I think we that did was our, the seven. We did, we, when we did our Phil Hoffman season, we 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 did a draft beforehand because we didn't we oh, did going to do fifty movies, but we were like, let's pick like sixteen or something like that. And a oh, rule sure. we made was only one film by each director, so we could only yes. pick one Paul yeah. Thomas Anderson movie. And Oof, George won the one. George won the coin flip, and he picked the master. And I, I mean, hard to I argue. was not, a, I was not a master fan. I'd seen it twice. I fell asleep both times and I was like, right. I don't know. And then I, we watched it and I was like, holy shit, this movie is a masterpiece. No, it, like, What's it, wrong with me? It's definitely one that takes a few viewings. And even if you don't care for it, uh, I mean, his performance he's incredible. is, he's so, good is, is, he's is, so good. Is unassailable. But you know, seven, that's, what's fun about the show is seven's too little because we didn't get like, for instance, before the devil knows you're dead on there. Um, which right. is an astonishing performance. So, um, but anyway, you guys, I should, I'll talk to the guys and have you guys on. Yeah. You guys would be great on it. It'd be so much. It's, it's we a would great, love it's a to come on that. Totally. Yeah. Um, uh, so next up on the show for us, we have Sanjuro coming up in a couple weeks and then high and low with special guest, Bill Gay Abiri to talk about that movie, which I think is just going to be ridiculous. Cause He's a great writer and, and thinker and talker. So that's going to be really fun. And then we're going to wrap it up with Redbeard. This is and the that'll final. Be the, so you're really so you're just doing Mifune. And you've got a couple of bonuses, you said? Got a couple yeah, of bonuses so we did there, a, yeah. We did. Like we, we, and... we've, we recorded an episode with actually our mutual friend Mark Pagan on The Wedding Ring, which is a, ro- huh. a, ro- a romance that Pag- uh, Pagan, that Mifune <laughs> the Pagan did. started, yeah. Pagan's in Wow, in very good. that's cool. Yeah, he's I'll really good. I've, never, I've never seen it. It's pretty good. It's on the Criterion channel. Okay, great. Um, it's a bit melodramatic. We're doing a, we have a bonus for of Ron, and we're going to do 
dreams. I think we're going to wrap mm. up things with dreams. That's um, a good idea. That's, that's sort of like a fitting. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, but uh, Brian, this has been really, really Thanks great. Again, We'd love yeah, to have you amazing. back on in the future I to talk about. Would love, would love to anytime. I've been awesome. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Please join us for the outro of the show. Oh, everybody, please rate, review, subscribe, and we have a Patreon. So, so please give us three dollars so a month for please. for George and I to argue about Tenant. Um, <laughs> just specifically, the Patreon just, gets you. It's, it's just, you guys are arguing about Tenant every week for three hours. We record a three-hour episode. We just argue about Tenant. The way that it works is we do it forward, and then we immediately yeah. reverse the audio and play it backwards. And okay, people are people it's, are really it's avant-garde it. podcasting. We feel like it's really cutting. I edge. like it. Yeah. I like it. It was produced. I like it. Christopher Nolan produced it. Um, <laughs> I was Liam Billingham. I was George Fergopoulos. I was Brian Cogman and still am. <laughs> and I think. this was. Or am I? I think you Sorry. are. I think this you are, yeah. was. Uber Busters. Yes, I did it. I did it. Oh, you beat me to I it. Did it. Yeah. Fuck yeah. You did it. We did it, fam. We survived. We did it.